Well, it's uh, <clears throat> fascinating to me and also a little bit, um, I guess a little scary, <laughs> that we as people can look at the, uh, the exact same situation, we can see all the same evidence, we can look at all the details and come to, in any situation, come to wildly different conclusions or have different responses to the same thing that happened. Uh, and I'm not talking about like differences of opinion. It's one thing to be like, yeah, there, there's certain things that I like more. Like we have opinions that are different about uh, favorite food or type of vacation spot or, or music taste. That's all opinion. But I mean, to the, like something that's like objectively true, like something actually happened. Uh, and one of us can say, no, it was this. Another can say, no, it was that and respond in different ways. Uh, this is... All you have to do is have like an event happen, uh, something in the realm of news, something in the realm of, of politics, and you can see this play out by just going to two different news sources and looking at the headlines, and you're like, are we living in the same world? Because it's like we just have wildly different responses to the same things happening. Um, in like opinion, difference of opinion doesn't really have much of an implication, but a difference of a response to something that's not opinion-related Actually, like there, there's a, there's a, like a, a, an effect of that. Like if I if I if I have the wrong response, it's like there's going to be a, a reaction or a consequence to that. Um, I'm a bit of a golfer. Any golfers in the room? A couple. Okay. Um, I should rephrase that. I play the game of golf sometimes. I am not a golfer. Okay. I am awful. I'm just absolutely awful. And and we'll go out and I'll joke sometimes. I'm like I. I don't have the time or the money to get good at golf because, like, you got to golf a lot. And I'm just like, yeah, maybe someday when I'm old and retired. I don't know. Probably not then either. But, you know, I'm a bit of a golfer and um, I go maybe, I don't know, like twice a month, three times a month in the summer. So not very much. Um, I'm a golfer then? I'm okay. Okay. All right. All right. Well, see, that makes me feel worse because now I'm bad. Now I'm just a bad golfer. I like it better when I'm not really a golfer. And, you know, let, let's say I'm on the course, and, and if you're not a golfer, you're just going to have to bear with me because this is not going to make sense. But those of you that have maybe a little bit of an idea of golf will know. I'm on the course, and let's say I'm about I'm 130 yards from the hole, okay? Um, I'm not on the fairway because that never happens, okay? Because usually I'm like, I'm on the other side of the fairway over the trees, okay? And so I'm like, 130 yards, I can get over the trees. I'm like, I need a nine iron. That is exactly what I need right now. Get some loft, get the right distance. So I pull my nine iron out of my bag. And I say, Jimmy, because I golf with Jimmy sometimes. I say, what club is this, Jimmy? This is a nine iron, sir. Try again. Who thinks Jimmy is blind or crazy right now? Oh, so the rest of you think I'm wrong. Belligerently, I will say this is in fact a nine iron and I will line up my shot and I will swing this as though I am swinging a nine iron and it will indeed clear the green by about 60 yards because it is in fact a six iron. You see, sometimes there are things that are objectively true, even though I think this is a nine iron, it is actually not. Right? And so like, there's an implication of my, uh, I guess, my response, the wrong response in this situation. Coincidentally, the, the TV stand has a little hole in the back. It's like, I'm going to leave that golf club in there every week. It's just like, I just get the hankering to swing a club. I really thought about swinging it this morning. I have just about enough space. I can do it. <laughs> I'm not going to. <laughs> you already heard that I'm a bad golfer, so let's, let's not break a TV or a projector. Uh, but here's the thing. <laughs> or any of, I won't let go of it. I mean, front row, you guys may be a little close, so <laughs> we'll back up a little bit. Um, 
But here's the thing. Some things that we have different, uh, we, we come to different conclusions on the objective evidence. Some things don't have that big of an impact, like me pulling out the wrong golf club. At the end of the day, the only impact that's going to have is me being in a bad mood for a bad round of golf, but that's pretty much any round of golf for me. So like, not that big of an impact. However, some things, we come to the wrong conclusion, they have massive impact. Like it, it impacts our life and who we are and what we do and the people around us and the world around us. Uh, and that's kind of where we're going, where the text is going to take us today. We're diving back in for the third week into John chapter 11. So we're kind of working through the gospel of John. This is the, this was like a mini series in chapter 11. It's been, this will be the third week of it. And we're wrapping things up today. And so here's what's happened so far. There's this family uh, that knows and loves Jesus. There's a brother, his name's Lazarus. There's two sisters, Mary and Martha. Uh, Jesus gets news, gets word that Lazarus is really, really sick. Um, and Jesus loves this family. John, the gospel writer, goes out of his way to remind us over and over, Jesus loves them, he loves them, he loves them. Uh, and so we hear that Lazarus is sick, and Lazarus ends up dying. Jesus travels to Mary and Martha and to Lazarus, and he shows up on the scene, and there's all these people. There's a crowd of people who are there to weep and to mourn with the sisters for the loss of their brother. And Jesus shows up, and he mourns with them, which is crazy because he knows what he's about to do, but he, he enters into their pain, and he mourns, and he weeps over this loss. And then he calls out, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, walks out of the tomb, um, and he's like, take the grave clothes off, let him go. And everyone's like, you've got to be kidding me. He just rose uh, a man from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's where we left things last week. And, and today, as we wrap up chapter 11, what we're going to see are some different responses to the miracle. We have people who are there, who see it, who witness it, who experience it, or who hear about it from those who are there and who are witnesses. And it's the same event, it's the same details. It's Lazarus, it's Mary, it's Martha, it's Jesus. He was dead four days, now he's alive, and here he is, and you can go talk to him. And they're all looking at the same set of, of information, but they come to very different responses about what this means or how they will process it or what they will think about it. And so we're just gonna kind of work through this passage. It's about nine verses. I, I do believe, if I did math right, it's just, it's iffy these days. Um, and we're gonna see three different responses by three different broad groups of people. So we're gonna jump right in. John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. Here is the first response, or the first group of people, I should say, that we're introduced to. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The first group of people that we see is this crowd that was there uh, with Mary and Martha at their house mourning. Many of the Jews who came to Mary. This group of people, friends and family and acquaintances, and uh, I mentioned briefly last week, sometimes in Jewish custom, they would hire professional like mourners or weepers. It's so, like so you, somebody, somebody died, like, like, we'll hire some people to come cry with us. So, it seems like an awful job, uh, but okay. And so there's this crowd of people who are there. And, and, and John says, hey, many of them, they saw what he did and they believed, but some of them didn't. First group of people is just this crowd. You have the many and you have the some, but they're all part of the same overall all group, the people that were there and saw this. And we, he, he kind of sets up this contrast, right, where uh, many believed, and that seems like a, a good response, the many believed, but not all of them did because some some were little tattletales, right? Like, this is how I picture the scene running in my mind. They went back to the Pharisees. They're like, Jesus rose a man from the dead. Like, how do you complain about that, right? Like, they're just like, but, but there was this thinking um, among the Pharisees, among the religious leaders, they were not fans of Jesus. And they had kind of already said, hey, you know, you report things to us. We're looking to get this guy 
caught up. Anybody who's following him, anybody who's spreading word about him is going to be in trouble. And so some of the people who see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead are like, we're, we're telling Jesus. And they go to the Pharisees. And it's crazy, just the difference. I mean, this is just our first group of people, this kind of crowd that's there. But even within the crowd, you have this distinction among two groups of people. But it's crazy that, that the very same people see the very same miracle. They see Jesus, they see Lazarus, they witness all of it, and they come to crazily different responses, completely different responses. There's a, a quote. Um, sometimes it's hard to figure out who exactly it was attributed to. The best I could find was that it's Charles Spurgeon, who was an old preacher a long time ago. Um, and, and speaking of Jesus, he said this, that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And so it's like, okay, the, the same thing happened. It was the same Jesus. It's the same miracle. But people's response wasn't necessarily an indication of who did the miracle or what Jesus was doing, but rather the disposition of their heart already. Like, are, are we softened by that? Are we like, wow, Jesus? Or have we already made up our minds? I don't like Jesus. And so the, this group, and this is the nature of the crowds, this first group of people, the crowds, the many, the masses, as we read through the Gospels, the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, especially in John, this theme emerges of the crowds that, that they, tend to, uh, they tend to be divided. Uh, they, they tend to be indecisive. The crowd goes back and forth, back and forth. We like Jesus. Now we hate Jesus. We're excited about Jesus. Now we don't like Jesus. Uh, and, and these moments come along where they just waver. They'll come up and they'll be like, we really, really like the miracles that he does. And they're like, whoa, that was so cool. Like, you like, this is great. Especially when they feed him. Like, when they're the recipient of the miracles, they really like the miracles that he does. But then he'll go and he'll say something or he'll teach something or he'll claim something about himself. And then they're confused and now they're like, we hate you. Uh, probably the best example of this actually is in John's gospel. In John 6, Jesus, it's, it's just after he's fed this massive crowd of people and the crowd is like, we love you, like thousands of people. Like, this is, this is great. We love Jesus. We're on team Jesus. And so the next day they go and follow him and they're like, hey, Jesus, we hungry. Like, give us some more food. And he's like, how about I give you this? And, and he goes into this teaching that concludes with this statement. He says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, <gasps> now he wasn't actually telling them to like come gnaw on his arm. But it's this idea of like consume him, put their faith in him, trust in him. And at the end of that, it says this massive crowd of people just a little, a little while before who love Jesus, they all turn, they all desert. They're all like, we're out of here. But this is the nature of the crowds in the gospels. They're indecisive. They're back and forth. We love him, we hate him. It's the first group of people uh, in response to Jesus. Even here as they witness Lazarus raised from the dead, some are like, yes, and others are like, that's the first group. Here's the second group. We read uh, verse 47, continuing on. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? The second group of people that we meet in this passage uh, is the Sanhedrin or just the religious leaders. It was this uh, Jewish ruling council of religious leaders. It was made up of the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Uh, and they were, they were the big shots. They were those in power. They were those in control. They were over the, the religious system uh, and, by extension, pretty much the everyday life of the Jewish people. And they are found to be in opposition to Jesus. And it's interesting what they say. They say, what, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? They don't actually... What we might think they would do is come out and say, no, he's not doing signs. We don't believe it. We didn't see it. But that's not what they do. They don't deny the evidence. They don't deny what he's doing or what they've seen. But their response to it, like, oh, no, we've seen him do these things, but we don't like it. 
We don't like it. We can't deny because like, like, there's Lazarus right there, okay? He was dead and now he's alive. There's that guy walking around that was paralyzed. There's that guy over there that was blind. Like we've seen it. We can't deny it, these signs that he's done. And th- this, is, this is one of the fascinating things. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating things, but about, about Jesus is the way that he intersects with history and other sources outside of the Bible. This idea that Jesus was someone who did miracles and who healed people um, is attested to in the New Testament of the Bible, certainly, but also in what are called extra-biblical sources. So things that are uh, contemporary in the first century at that time, but outside of what we would call uh, the scriptures. And so there are sources around the time of Jesus in that first century time period that talk about Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth being like a miracle worker and a healer. And, and most of the sources are not friendly towards Christianity. They're not friendly towards Jesus. They're like, they're saying things about Jesus like, yeah, he was leading people astray and was a sorcerer. Like, like we, we know he's doing, you know, um, miraculous things, but they're attributing kind of evil intent to it. Uh, one particular source is a guy named Josephus. So Josephus is a first century uh, Jewish historian. So not a Christian, not a believer or follower of Jesus. He says this in his history, um, At this time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds. That's a great way of putting he did miracles. He was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a following among many Jews and among many of Greek origin as well. And so Josephus says, hey, one of the things that is known about Jesus is he he did miracles. Um, and there are, there's parts of Josephus that aren't legit, that are like, that are later editions, but historians look at that particular section right there and say, that, yeah, that's, that's original to Josephus. That one of the things he said is like, it's well known that Jesus was a miracle worker. And so these religious leaders, leaders are like, yeah, like he did these things. He's healing people. Like he's gaining this massive following. It's not that we're denying he's doing it, but what will our response to it be? And they do call them signs as uh, I mentioned in the series a couple of times that it's more than just a miracle. They're not just parlor tricks that Jesus is doing. Like, hey, guys, watch this. I'm going to go walk on water. It's really cool. Um, but they're signs because what do signs do? Signs point us towards something. And so John's like, these are signs because they are pointing to the identity of who Jesus is. And John um, organizes his gospel. The central part of his gospel is ordered and organized around seven different signs. Jesus did a whole lot of other things, and John even tells us that at the end of his gospel. He's like, I didn't write everything down. All the books in the world couldn't hold it if I wrote down everything that Jesus did. But he says, but what I have written is so that you may believe. He's like, I've given you enough information that you can make an educated decision to to what you're going to think about Jesus. And so there are these seven signs, turning water into wine, healing the royal official son, healing a paralyzed man at the pool, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing a man born blind, and the last one is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so chapter 11 comes at the end of the signs that John has recorded for us. So chapter 11 then, and the people's reaction is not simply a response to raising Lazarus from the dead. It is that, but it's also their response, John putting it there to be like, okay, here are the signs that Jesus has done. You have the information now. What are you going to do with it? He's doing these many signs. And what is our response to the signs the second group, they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the response of the second group is a response that they're threatened by Jesus. It's a response of hostility or opposition. They're like, Jesus is a threat to the status quo. We, we kind of like how things are and he's going to come and mess all of that up. And you, you can hear it in their language. He's going to come and take away what? Our place. 
He's going to come and take away our place. Their primary concern is one of self-preservation, the way that uh, Rome operated in this region. So Rome is the superpower on the scene. They, they dominate most of the known world in the first century. Uh, but the way they, they operated within Judea is they let the Jewish people have some level of independence. Basically, it was this kind of agreement. Hey, we're Rome and we're in charge, but we will let you guys, you, you, just, you can do what you want to do as long as there is no kind of uprising. As long as there's no revolts, as long as there's no rebellions, we'll, we'll leave you alone. Uh, and, and they would kind of delegate authority to the local uh, leaders, to this religious council. So Rome had its, its governors and its leaders and officials in places, and we, they intersect with the New Testament. We read about people like Herod, and we read about people like Pontius Pilate. But the kind of the day-to-day, like on the ground, leading and governing of the people, a lot of that was led or, or left to the religious uh, council. And so they're like, hey, as long as religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, as long as you keep the common folk in line, you can keep doing your thing and we won't have any problems. But if they get out of line, if the people rise up and want to have some sort of rebellion, Rome will come with their legions, with their soldiers and wipe you out. And so this is the concern of these religious leaders. Like, man, if everybody keeps following Jesus and Jesus' claim is that he's the Messiah, that is he's like God's final king, and people start going around saying we're following this other king, we're going to have a problem with Rome. And we're going to lose our place and our nation and our authority and our status quo. They're opposed. They're threatened by Jesus. And one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. My translation, you idiots. Okay, like you know nothing at all. (laughs) Twiddling his mustache. I don't know, guys. This is how my brain works. You know this. But Caiaphas, he's the high priest. And it's interesting. So the high priest in the Old Testament was supposed to be a lifetime appointment. But again, under Rome, they're like, no, we kind of make the rules. And so Rome would approve of or put into position the high priest, someone that they saw fit in terms of being able to relate to Rome and relate to the people and keeping people in check without anybody getting too much power. They, they wouldn't let someone be a, a high priest for life because that person would amass too much power. But Caiaphas um, ends up being the high priest for about 18 years. And before him, it was his father-in-law, Annas, for like 10 years. And so this is a family that's like, yeah, we, we know how to pull the strings of power. We know how to keep Rome happy. We know how to keep the people under control. And he's like, listen, guys, I have experience in this. You know nothing at all. You're all worried about Jesus and his following and these signs that he's doing. Um, let me give you the solution to our Jesus problem. Verse 50, he says, you're not considering that it is to your advantage It's good for you, religious leaders. It's to your advantage, it's to your profit that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. And so Caiaphas sets up these like, you have two options. Either one man die or the nation die. Take your pick. Here's, we have this Jesus problem. Here's what we can do. We can either let this keep going on and the Romans will come and they'll take our place, they'll take our power, they'll take our nation. We'll be put out, you know, we'll be killed. It'll be awful. Or, and I know this might make some of you squeamish, it might make you a little uncomfortable, and you may not want to get your hands dirty, but or we put Jesus to death and our problem is solved. You pick. You pick. It's better that Jesus, one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. John, who's writing this, um, several decades after it's happened. So John's an old man at the time that he's writing this. He's been with Jesus. He, he, you know, he saw his life, his death, his resurrection. And now John's an old man. He's like, I got to pass on what I know to the next generation. And so kind of reflecting back on this moment, he, he gives us this little detail and says, as Caiaphas said this, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die 
for the nation. And not just for the nation, but also to unite the scattered children of God. And so John clues us into this little idea that there's, there's like an ironic double meaning to Caiaphas' statement here. That, that Caiaphas is not saying this like, you know, we would think of like the Christian sense of like, oh, Jesus is going to die for people to save them from their sins. Yay, we love Jesus. That's not what Caiaphas is thinking because the religious leaders don't like Jesus at all. Like they're always trying to kill him. They're always trying to get him caught up in different things. Caiaphas has a meaning here basically of, of, of Jesus is going to die for the nation as like a scapegoat, right? As like a, leave us alone here. Let's kill this guy. But John is cluing us into this, this fact that even though that's what Caiaphas said, God was going to do something different through it. That, that, that John is, is pointing us back to this, this irony, this double meaning that even though for Caiaphas and the religious leaders, this was about like a political motivation, this was about maintaining power, but instead God had something different in mind that he would, he would die for the people. He would die in a spiritual sense for people to save us from our sins, all the junk, all the garbage, all the hell that we unleash on the world and on each other. He's going to come and die for that, that he would die for people and to unite the scattered children of God. And so from that day on, they plotted to kill him. That's the second group. The second group of these religious leaders, that Jesus is a threat He's threatening the status quo. We are opposed to him. Let's meet the last group. Verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with the disciples. Third group, the disciples. Those that were his followers, those that came along and saw what Jesus did and heard his claims and said, okay, we believe you, but not just like in a sense of, yeah, sure, we think that's true, but in a sense that our actions are backing it up. Wherever you're going, we're following you. You're going out into the wilderness, cool, we're there. The crowd is going back and forth, we're not. The, the religious leaders are out to kill you, I, okay, I guess we're gonna go and die with you. It is the, the disciples of Jesus. And this would have included um, the famous kind of like the 12, but it also included there's a larger kind of group of, of disciples that followed Jesus everywhere as well, including who we meet earlier in this chapter, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, like that family. There are other people that are followers of Jesus, some of which actually are, start as people who are in the crowd, right? They start as people who are like, hey, we're kind of interested. We're going out to hear Jesus. What does he have to say? What is he all about? And eventually they would become disciples. But there's this third group that says, okay, we've seen enough. We've heard enough. We've experienced enough. We believe, we trust in this Jesus and we're with him. We're with him. It's the committed few. And, and, and I like the little detail that John gives us. He's like, okay, he goes out into the wilderness. This is getting towards the end of Jesus' life, right? Like he's about to be murdered really, really soon for our sins. And he goes out into the wilderness, kind of this lonely space. And the disciples, he says, they're, they're there with him. See, the nature of this third group, of being a disciple, of being a follower, of trusting in Jesus, the nature of that, is relational. Like to be a disciple of Jesus means to know him and to be with him and to follow him. It's relational in the sense of like, yes, we're with him, but more so than that, he's with us. It says when life is great, he's with me. When life is absolutely awful, he's with me. 
When I'm, when I'm trying to figure out parenting, he's with me. When I'm trying to figure out marriage, he's with me. When I'm trying to figure out work and career, he's with me. When I'm trying to figure out, like, the, the world is falling apart and it seems like everything is going nuts, he, he's with me. Like, this is the nature of discipleship. To say, I'm trusting in you. I'm with you, Jesus. And he is with me, showing me, leading me, guiding me, transforming me. He is with his disciples. Three groups, and these are the three responses to Jesus. We see these responses to Jesus all throughout his ministry. Like every, every time that Jesus does something, teaches something, heals someone, you'll see these three groups popping up. There's a crowd of people around who are like, yeah, this is cool, I guess. I don't know. What's up with this Jesus guy? There's the religious leaders that are like, we don't like you. And then there's the disciples that are just like, okay, we're here. We're here. No matter what happens, no matter how things go, we're here. The crowds who are indecisive, the religious leaders who are opposed, the disciples who believe. That sense of belief even through, again, when things are, are difficult. You know, there's that moment that I talked about earlier when the, um, there's a big crowd that walks away from Jesus because he's like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you get to the end of that and all that's left with him are the disciples. And he asks them, he's like, you guys, you guys wanna leave? You wanna leave me too? And Peter has this very, very telling line. He just says, to whom shall we go? Like, it's like, yeah, we kind of want to leave. He doesn't say, no, we don't want to leave. But he's like, we don't have a better option because we've seen who you are. We believe who you are. We trust who you are. And so even though this doesn't make sense and this hurts and this is painful and it's confusing, and it's uncomfortable, we don't, you're the best thing going. To whom shall we go? The three groups. And, you know, it's crazy. 2,000 years ago, right, roughly, Jesus is walking the planet. He's teaching these things. He's dying for our sins. He's raising from the dead. And over the past 2,000 years, up until today, the responses to Jesus are pretty much the same. It, it falls into one of those three categories that everyone on some level is either indecisive, opposed, or all in. Those are really the only options. You know, as we evaluate things today, you know, people, we look at the same information, right? We all have access to the same info, at, at least like in our culture and in our context, like we, we have the same information. And so we look at the historical record. We, we look at the scriptures, which are like, the most incredible ancient document that we have. There is nothing on the planet that compares to the reliability and the transmission history of the scriptures and their, how they testify to Jesus. We, we look at the work of Jesus, who again, he intersects not just in scripture, but in uh, uh, history and other sources. We look at the, the evidence of transformed lives through the power of the spirit. Like there are people who's like, you used to be one way and now you're completely different. What happened? And they're like, Jesus happened. And you're like, really? That, that seems too simple. He's like, no, Jesus happened. Like, that's why I'm so different. We, we look at this idea that, of transformed societies in a world that is completely different because of the influence and the impact of Christianity on the world. We gather all that up and go, okay, what is my response? And we see three different responses. Today, we, we, we still see those who are indecisive. It's like, I kind of like Jesus. I kind of don't. Or sometimes, honestly, sometimes it's just like, I just don't really think about it that much, you know? It's like, it's not something that crosses my mind every day. Or there's those who are like, yeah, like Jesus is cool. You know, there's, there's this idea like, he's cool, he works for you, but it's not my thing, you do you. That's in this category of indecisiveness. Category of indecisiveness is like, I like Jesus sometimes. Like, I love what he says about like justice and loving our neighbor. I love how he goes around healing people and reaching out to the least of these and the poor and the broken. I love that about Jesus. Not such a big fan about loving my enemy though. Hmm and forgiving people, and, and like him talking about the grip of material possessions on our lives, and his sexual ethic. I don't like all those parts about Jesus, and so I'm back and forth. There's parts I like, there's parts I don't. 
Indecisiveness takes the form of, this, this is so big, especially in contexts like ours, indecisiveness takes the form of cultural Christianity, where it's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I love Jesus. And it's like, but do you love the people around you? Well, no. Do you serve people? Well, no. Are you part of a community of faith? No. But you love Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. That's like, this is the, the indecisive response to Jesus. It's kind of waffles, waffling, not not this kind of waffling, okay? Not that kind. Second response, right? We see opposition to Jesus today. Like the hostile, this lives on the internet a lot. <laughs> Christianity is stupid. And if you're a Christian, you're stupid. And Christianity is what's wrong with the world. And, and it's what's bad. It's what's messed up. And I lovingly, I lovingly say most of that, especially on the internet, is our arguments from ignorance. It's like straw manning the argument that we would not know or understand the Western world as we know it today without the impact of Christianity. But this idea of opposition, you know, some of this comes out of the same posture of, like, of the religious leaders. It's like, well, it's, if this is true, it's a threat to my status quo. I don't want this to be true. But here, here, here's the reality for those of us that are Christians, and I want us to know this, is that we get, we, as Christians, we tend to get really fired up about this one. Like, how dare you be against my faith and my religion? And don't you know? It's like, we get really fired up about this one, but it's actually this that's the bigger threat to our faith. It's us trying to live as followers of Jesus, going back and forth, back and forth, and thinking like, I'm good, I'm good, and I kind of like Jesus sometimes. In fact, neither of those are good options. And we see a third option at work today. We see legitimate belief right? We, we do see people with this response. And man, so many of you are here in this room and I know you and I know your story and it's awesome. Where it's like, Jesus is everything. He is my life. I trust him with everything. I'm giving him my whole life. I'm giving him like everything I do, every part of me. I'm following him. I'm believing in him. I'm trusting in him. And because of that, I am not the same person that I used to be. I've been transformed. I've been made new. And, and, and here's the thing, like these are the responses. We're looking at the same, same set of data, the same information. We're going with one of these responses. Unlike some things where having different responses has no real significance other than a bad day on the golf course or whatever, some things have no real significance. This has massive significance because of that ironic double meaning, that statement that Caiaphas made that's kind of just buried in there. He's like, yeah, it's better that one man should die than everyone perish. It's better that we kill this Jesus for everyone else. And while Caiaphas wanted the death of Jesus for his own benefit, God's plan always was for the death of Jesus to be to the benefit of you and me. That this thing that is said is that Jesus' death on the cross pays for our sins. His resurrection from the dead releases us from the power of death. Death is not the end. Because of Jesus, we are freed from all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, every jacked up, stupid thing that we have ever done, ever will do, that we can actually be made new. And that's a beautiful thing, because it's one thing to think I'm forgiven, it's another thing to know I can be made new. Because I can live in the space where I think, oh, I'm forgiven, but I still feel like I'm the same old stupid person that I used to be. But scripture comes along with this beautiful truth that says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You're not the old you with a fresh coat of paint. You are brand new. You are not who you used to be. You are not what's been done to you. You are not what you have done. Like you have an opportunity to be made new, to get up every day and say, I'm brand new today because of Jesus. And the past is in the past. That I am not, I, I, I am, I am not beholden to like some set of circumstances. My, my future is not chosen for me in terms of like, well, this is just who I am. This is my lot in life. And so I guess this is just how it's gonna be. He says, no, I have something better for you. 
Because of Jesus, we can be transformed through the power of his spirit. We can have hope and peace and joy and love, these things that every human on the planet is longing for, is looking for, and so, so few actually find. We can have purpose and calling to get up every day and actually have a reason for being on this planet, not just thinking, I guess I'll get up, I'll go to work, I'll go to school, I'll go to bed, I'll do it again, I'll do it again, I'll do it again for 80 years, and then my life is over. But to say, no, you have a reason to live. You were made for something. Because of Jesus, we have the gift of eternal life to be forever in the presence of the God who made us, experiencing the world as it was meant to be. And Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has made that available to everyone. He's like, hey, I'm throwing the doors open to that kind of life, to you and me and every single person. It is available to everyone. But here's the catch. We only take hold of it. We only receive that. We only step into that with one of these three responses. And it's not indecisiveness, and it's not opposition, It's only through belief. It's only through trust. It's only through saying, okay, like, I trust this. Jesus was God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died for my sins, rose from the dead, and he's calling me to follow him with every single aspect of my life. I'm in. I'm in. And so here's the question as we wrap things up. What's my response to Jesus? Am I indecisive? Like, yeah, I don't know. I'm opposed, but, you know, I'm not sure if I'm in. Am Am I actually opposed? Or do I trust? Do I believe? We've all got to answer this question. In fact, all of us do answer this question at some point or another. Actually, all of us pretty much answer this question every day. We don't verbalize it. We don't say it. We don't think like, hmm, what's my response to Jesus today? But just in the way that we live, like every action, every word that I speak, every interaction that we have together and the way that we treat people and the way that, like everything that I'm doing, I am either being like wishy-washy, indecisive about Jesus. I'm either opposed to him or I'm saying, I trust you in this following you in this. So how do I respond? How do I respond? Let me just, let me just say this. I'm going to wrap up. If, if, you, if you haven't answered this question yet, you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, there's no better day to do it than today. And spend the rest of your life knowing and pursuing the God who loves you and who died for you. And if you're not ready to make that commitment yet, that's cool. Like it, nobody should be forced into that either. But I would encourage you to just take a next step. Say, okay, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I'm not here yet, but I'm open to getting there. Take a step. Come back next week, the week after that. Get some people in your life that can speak this into you. But beyond making that decision for the first time, again, this is a call for all of us to say, today, am I trusting him? What's my step in faith as I continue to follow him and pursue him? What does it look like for me to be a disciple of Jesus? Let's pray. God, thanks so much for loving us the way that you do, um, for sending your son to die for us. It's this beautiful reality. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. We don't, we don't have to just theorize about who you are or what you're about or do you love us? What's your heart after? Because you have showed it. You've demonstrated it. You've proved it. 2,000 years ago, you became human. You walked this planet. You lived a perfect life. You showed us what it looks like to love God, to love neighbor. You gave your life on a cross to pay for our sins. You rose from the dead to free us from the power of death. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, I just pray that we would be people who respond in faith, that respond in trust, that respond in belief, that we just say, everything is yours. I'm following after you. God, we, we rest and we trust and we, we hope in the fact that when we do that, we are forgiven, we are freed, we are filled with your spirit. And so God, for everyone who is here, who is watching, Lord, may you speak to us through your spirit right now. May we know what our next step is you give us the, the courage and the boldness to take it? We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.